0: Thanks so much for joining me. Arnold Hooker has been a missionary for more than a quarter of a century and has compiled more experiences than we have time to talk about. As a missionary and as an advocate for missions, Arnold's life of mission service has resulted in great things being done by God. This is Our Conversation. Arnold, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, let's go back to the beginning. You're a missionary, now you're a coordinator of missionaries, but more about that later. How did you get involved in mission work?
1: Well, you know, when you're a young person, you think, I'd like to be a missionary. And in fact, uh, I tried to get into ADRA, but I was a furniture maker. My father was a furniture maker and uh, my brothers are furniture makers. And so what happened was, uh, I, they said, I, we don't need your skills. We need, you know, someone with, uh, pastoral skills, or we need someone who, you know, can do agriculture or something like that. So I kept filling the, they used to, in those days, you put quarters into envelopes, it would hold $40 of for the quarters and send them to Adder. I thought, that's all you need to do. Send in your money to ADRA and you're doing your part for mission. And, uh. I found a magazine one day called Frontier Mission Magazine, Adventist Frontier Missions, and I read it, and um, I thought, I wonder if I could do that. And someone prompted me to, to, to maybe start online, and it uh, wasn't online then, actually, to, to call them up and see if that would be something I could do. And that's kind of how it started.
0: Okay, let, let's rush through this, but we'll come back. So you have spent how much time where? Where have you served?
1: Well, I spent six years in Cambodia. And then actually coming back to the U.S. Uh, for uh, several years, uh, finding funds for sending missionaries and stuff. And, but for the last six years, now being field director uh, in Cambodia and Papua New Guinea. All right. And so also Nepal. And er- earlier, we were in Nepal. Yeah.
0: All right. So Cambodia. And where do we begin? Tell me about your time in Cambodia. What were you there to do? And what did you do?
1: Um, in Cambodia, uh, we were there to church plant. And church plant simply means to uh, learn the language. All, all Adventist missionaries have to learn language. And so I learned a language. And then uh, we, we just made friends with people, just like you would next door to your home here in the United States. You make, make friends with people. And uh, kept learning language. I used to go to the people and say, "Am I saying this right?" They would laugh at me, and finally, they stopped laughing, and and I was saying the words right. And, and then just invite them. We we had an English school and different things to invite people to to get them interested in our book rack. We had you know different things to share with them, already written. Uh, some of the things written in that time, Bible studies and so on. And um, so yeah,
0: we just. So you, you went to Cambodia in what year? Uh,
1: the uh, I believe it was January or March of
0: 1995. Okay, so we're going back a few years now. What was the landscape like mm. religiously? Mm. Talk to me what it was like to be a Christian mm. in Cambodia then. Mm. I want you to tell me, too, about the political situation that is as it relates to daily life and as it may or may not impact Christianity at that time?
1: Well, many of your uh, viewers are going to know about Pol Pot, and Pol Pot was still alive during that time when we were there. The Khmer Rouge was just kind of phasing out, and a new, new government was coming in. In those days, when we went, they would, we would go through roadblocks, and they would check through your, your luggage and everything. They, they, did, they opened our luggage many times.
0: Was there hostility towards Christians?
1: Um I don't think there was hostility towards christians i I think there was a there was an opening there that had never been before They were coming out of diversity trouble like they had never had in their country and they were looking for answers and I think Christians at that time and and different organizations were there taking care of uh, the people like they had never been taken care of by their own government. It was so poor when we went there they really wanted us to be there. we provided uh, Gifts and different things simply by helping with English classes, medicine, and, and I can remember taking people to the hospital. I took pregnant ladies and rushed them to the hospital. I, I nearly had a baby inside my old Jeep. I had an old, uh, at the time, a Vietnam veteran old Jeep that was left over from the Vietnam War that I had found and I was using that for an ambulance. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a different time. Now it seems like, The government has grown wealthy in some ways, and um, they don't need the Christian or the NGOs there anymore.
0: Mm. There's so much to talk about. I want to try not to miss too much of it, but uh, let's walk through some of the practical sides of mission work. Because one of the things I hope, in fact, one of the things I know as we talk, there are going to be numerous people who say, yeah, I felt like God is calling me to to, to either be a full-time missionary or to become more active in supporting mission work. You went from the United States to Cambodia, which when you went, there was a whole lot more primitive, mm. if I can use that word, than it yes. is now. Mm. Walk me through that process. You, you went there with, with children. You went to a, a country that was very different from what you were like now, what, what, what the United States is like now or what it, what it is like now. Um, what's that culture shock transition like when you go from a, First world Western nation to a country presumably you'd never been to before
1: you know when you get off the plane immediately you realize that you don't speak the language I mean they're speaking Cambodian and um, it's they're coming at you really fast with their language, you don't understand it anyway, and it sounds like they're angry with you and and I can remember the smells because there were no public bathrooms or oh. you know and stuff like this. the smells were. And the heat magnified that smell, and and uh, just the flies and the and the different things that, that it was just totally different. And finding a place to live, we were we were blessed because uh, Scott and Julie Griswold were there uh, ahead of us, and uh, and they had found us temporary place to live while we learned language and stuff.
0: Not all missionaries have it that good, right?
1: No. In fact, them getting there, they were in the Kawi Dong camps and the camps of, of Thailand um, after the war. They were helping there, and then they came into Cambodia to help the Cambodians later. So they'd already been there and, and understood the language and, and so on and so forth. So you forth. get
0: to a place like that, did you ever say, we just got to get on the plane and fly straight <laughs> on?
1: I can tell you many times, you, you have, with tears in your eyes, you wonder why you even came here. And, you know, I don't mean it bad, but people can be misunderstanding of you and, and uh, misunderstanding misunderstand you and misunderstandings happen and uh, i've been spit at i've been you know i i can tell you story after story uh but anyway it was it's just a different place and you have to learn how to use their rules not your own right and uh i remember being very american and thinking i'm going to do it the way you know i grew up understanding how things are done and and you just can't do things you've got to
0: adapt you've got to be very adaptable i suppose when you go to a foreign place like a very foreign Mm. place Mm. you you've been based relatively recently in australia going Mm. from the united states to australia yeah no big deal uh, other than the distance but going to cambodia
1: Mm.
0: so what are some of the I don't want to major in the challenges, but I sure do want you to tell me about them. What are some of the real challenges? You get there and you you, you bed down, you find a place, and now Mm. life has got to crank up. What are some of the things that you faced or that missionaries face that people like me, you know, we just don't understand or don't know about?
1: Well, one of the things that you can think about is like medical help. My little girl and I got in a motorcycle crash. Along with, we had four of us on a motorcycle. But anyway, we we crashed, and there was no nowhere to go. We had to treat our own wounds, and you just stroke.
0: no just nowhere to go. No, at,
1: that, at that time there was no medical facilities. Now there's oh, sure. plenty of them now, yeah. but but in those days there was no no doctors, no nurses available, and so you had to be your own doctor and nurse, and that's a little scary, especially. Um, I can remember uh, one of my family members was sick, and uh, I had to give them medicine that I didn't know exactly what it was, but I knew they had malaria, so I had to prescribe it, (laughs) give it to them, and and it cured the sickness, and no one died. But, you know, it's a little scary being in, you know, having to do those kind of things for yourself. And that's the way it was when we first went there.
0: Now, you mentioned children. So, what's it like taking children t- to the mission field again? You didn't go to Australia; mm-hmm. you went to Cambodia at a time mm-hmm. when, as we've already talked, things were a whole lot more primitive than they are now. So, what what's it like for the mission family to take kids, little kids, into an environment like that? For the for the most part, it's
1: a hundred percent positive. Uh, we I took a two and a half year old. Uh, my youngest daughter was two and a half, Hannah, and um, the people just loved her. This little little girl that they didn't see very often. She the Her first words were, uh, don't touch me and don't lift up my dress, you know, because they would come and look underneath her dress and want to see what she looked like and stuff. It was just, you know, it was just totally all, you know, different for, for them. And I can remember getting on a, a ferry boat and she had been learning how to sing Cambodian songs. She was about four and a half by this time. And she took the mic off of the, the the captain had always invited us into the into the uh, cabin of the of the ferry boat that took us from one side of the river to the other. She pulls the mic off the off the wall and she sings, "Pre Jesus Ralankmengdo, Jesus loves me, this I know," and um, and the captain just looks at her and smiles. And 450 people on this boat are listening to Jesus loves me in Khmer from a little girl. And why I say they're an asset is because children learn the language much faster than I do. I can remember getting a phone call and, and the person would be chatting so quickly. I couldn't understand what they were saying. I'd hand it to one of the kids and they'd say, Oh, dad, this person crashed, you know, over here and you got to go help them. They're on such and such street, you know, such and such an avenue and they're, they need help. And so I'd go, but I, I couldn't understand because the person was speaking high speed Cambodian. And, you know, so you have to, you have to force yourself to learn language, so we learn language, but the children were an asset because they learned the language so much faster. In fact, my Hannah, who lives right here in Tennessee and, and within a mile or, or five miles up here, um, she speaks without intonation. If you talk to her from a, on a phone and she's speaking Khmer, you won't know she's not a, a Cambodian.
0: Even after all these years? Even after all these years. Wow. So what was your living situation like? Did you live in the country? Did you live in the city? Were you on a busy street mm. in an apartment building? Mm. What, what was that like?
1: Well, we found a little house to rent. And within that first year, it flooded all the way to the second story. It was two stories. And I can remember um, in those days, there was a medical clinic uh, that had opened up for for women. And uh, this lady was burning her needles in the ditch, burning and burning the garbage from her clinic there. And the water came up, and I remember walking out and thinking, I know that those needles are around here, and we were walking out in bare feet, you know. And I mean, it, it was, uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but it was, it, it's just so different. You know, things that you don't expect to happen,
0: expect to happen. Yeah, like a flood, yeah. flooding your house out. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I had rats come in. I had literally a rubber bat. The rats would come up the stairs, and I'd bop them on the head and knock them into the water, and another one would come up because it was high ground. The Mekong supposedly only once in 10 years would do this, and it actually did it twice while we were in that house. The river came up, and that was really uh, disheartening for for some. But, you know, the people that lived lived near us, they came over to our house because it was two stories. Their houses were lots of one story, stayed with us, and they said, you know, you remained with us through the flood, you really must love us. And, it's, and it made uh, inroads that we couldn't have made.
0: Yeah, so that those challenges were really allowed by God because he saw the end from the beginning, saw how that would be an asset to you. That's right. Yeah. Practical things, you know, it didn't take me long to start thinking about food when you talk about an Asian country. Mm. What, what was the food like and, and what, was there an ad- adaptation process and was that difficult?
1: They have a lot of fruits and vegetables that we have here, so that really wasn't that that hard and I fell in love with Cambodian curry. It's kind of sweet and savory and very nice. Um, I found out later they used the anchovies and a few things that I wasn't used to eating. But um, uh, they, we found that they could leave it out too. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, yeah. So the food the was food okay. Is, the food is very good in Cambodia. Um, while they eat a lot of different things that we don't eat, but, I mean, to find food it was
0: fairly fairly easy, yeah, but you had to live without lasagna and peanut butter and and a bunch of stuff, so that that 's another practical practical change you had to wrestle with
1: you know, you could get those things, but it was like ten times what it would cost in the united states so if you if you wanted lasagna like you mentioned it was it was fairly expensive, and lots of times the bugs had already gotten into the package, so you know they say you 've been a missionary uh, too long when you when you uh Throw the cereal out and eat the bugs, you know. <laughs> so uh, our food often got buggy, and and uh, but you know now that it's changed after twenty, you know, five years, you can go to a, they have big grocery stores there now and everything. So it's not like it was, but we would find things past pull date sometimes two years. We I remember getting peanut butter that was just like almost solid in the thing. we stirred it and stirred it and stirred. It. it was peanut butter though, and when you miss something, you want you want peanut butter, you know.
0: So you move to a foreign country, it's hot as anything, the weather's lousy, unless you like that kind of thing, you you crash a motorcycle with two of your kids on board, there's no doctor, your house floods, not just that, you're worried about stepping on hypodermic needles that the lady doctor dumps in the ditch outside your house, you're eating food you're not accustomed to, and so on, you're long way from home. The kids aren't seeing their grandparents hardly ever. But you hung in there because you do. you hung in there because there was a purpose. There was something driving you. You were there to church plant. Mm. So let's flip this now. Let's start talking about the the, the work, the mission work, mm. the outreach that you were doing. So mm. you've, you we've spoken about this a little bit. You're in a foreign country, initially didn't speak the language, sounds like everybody's angry when they talk, and that's how Cambodian sounds if you're not familiar with it. But you got about the business of sharing Jesus. So, so you, you talked about making friends with people. Let, let's drill down this because you were there for a reason. And the, the hazards are the hazards and the troubles are the troubles. And that's what missionaries deal with. God bless them. How do you go about church planting? Let's talk about what happened. People wanted Jesus. Walk me through this.
1: You know, um, our, our ministry was primarily to, to younger people because we, ha- we did start an English school. And we didn't think it was going to be all that great, um, so we put up some posters and banners around the city.
0: Yeah, why did you start an English school?
1: Um, because um, uh, we found out that if you were a Cambodian who spoke English, you could get jobs at the new airports that were coming into the country, and, and in the tourist trade you could find work and stuff. And so the kids were keen to learn uh, Chinese or English. And there was a Chinese school right up the road, so we were going to do competition with that, and I don't speak Chinese anyway, so we uh, started an English school. And uh, we put a, we put a advertisement out just on little posters all over, and we were overwhelmed. 250 kids came out of this little village and wanted to be in our English school. Wow. It dwindled off after a while because I'll tell you, we weren't prepared for 250. We had to do it in... Rotation at first we had we had uh, even student missionary help and and uh, my my older children uh, Shiloh she was able to do English teaching even though she was you know I think maybe thirteen or fourteen at the time and uh, Josh my other son he helped and even Hannah the youngest she she got involved in helping people just love to hear a little girl speak in English and and go through a lesson or whatever
0: um so this was a way for you to get into the community mm-hmm. learn to meet mm-hmm. people and take mm-hmm. it from there mm-hmm. yeah
1: and then we started a pathfinder group uh we started doing things that the kids had never done i found canals and different places to take them out in the truck and go swimming and just floating on inner tubes and a lot of them didn't swim they were too far away from where we were at in Kampot Cham, there was the, the there was the river there, but a lot of them didn't go in the river. It was a danger, you know, kind of a dangerous place. that had, went up and down. A lot of kids went into the river, but a lot of the kids didn't swim. So we would go to find places where they could stand on the bottom and splash and whatever,
0: just enjoy enjoy being kids. Let me ask you a question. I should have asked you already. Where's Cambodia? Mm. And where in Cambodia were you?
1: Okay, so Cambodia is is pasted between. Uh, Thailand and Vietnam, and Lao just above in China, just above the whole thing okay and so um,
0: and, and going there it 's a settled it, when you were there, it was a settled place. You mentioned Pol Pot uh, and a new government coming in. Was it explosive? was it dangerous? How mm. would you describe it?
1: When we went, there was more landmines in the ground than people above the ground, and uh, one of the things we had to teach our kids is to n- notice the landmine signs because kids will' play and stuff. and um, even after a bank built a bank uh, on a on a piece of property, and they um, they had minesweepers come in after it had already been dubbed okay, and they found three more landmines. And so they would they would take the landmines out during the day, and then and then Pol Pot would put them in during the night. And so you know it was sound- so
0: as, as a missionary you went to a place that was literally a minefield, and and. And where within the country were you?
1: Uh, we were in a place called Kampong Cham, and uh, Kampong Cham was a um, was a village camp of the Cham. Kampong Cham. This is where the Muslims were. Although we weren't targeted at the Muslims at the time, the 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 the, um, the idea was is that we would reach the the Cambodian people at large. So. The, we worked with the Buddhist people at, at, at that time.
0: Okay. Were you near a big city? Were you near a small town? <clears throat> How far was it to civilization?
1: Um, Phnom Penh was the largest big city, and that was, of course, the capital city. When you when you got supply, you went into Phnom Penh. Uh, you know, of course, it's not that way today. Now Kampucham has supermarkets and and so on.
0: Okay. You you established an English English language school. And the purpose for you being there was to share Jesus with people. So Lentz, me- right. how, how did you do that practically speaking? There was a time mm. at some stage you got to open up the Bible. You know, you got to mm. get to that. So when you've gone, when you've gone to a very foreign culture, not a Christian culture like we live in here in the United States, how do you start building those bridges? Because one, one reason I ask you this is that principle. That is employed in the mission field. It's important for us to employ in the home mission field. So,
1: how did that happen? You know, friendship evangelism's tried and true. Making friends with someone, um, loving people, um, eating with them. I can remember the kids would come and they'd be hungry. So, we'd put some kind of crackers or something out and, and make sure that they had a little something in their tummy or whatever. And uh, I introduced popcorn to them. I'd brought bags of popcorn from the United States, and they hadn't had that before. We would pop it and put it out on the porch, and the kids would just try a little. They were very polite. They wanted more, but um, they'd take a handful and eat it. And and uh, now it's a pretty popular thing over in Cambodia. I'm not saying I did that, but I'm just saying it's popular now. But it wasn't when we first got there. You had to bring your own popcorn from from the United States. Yeah, it's a way to make
0: friends, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean, just loving, loving people, uh, whatever it would, whatever we did. We, we took kids with us wherever we went. When we went on vacation, there would be a couple of kids go, go along with us from the village. Yeah. And the kids always had the kids over for eat, eating with us. And whatever we did, we, had, we, we just enjoyed the people and started being uh, a part of, of them instead of you know the opposite.
0: What sort of spiritual receptivity did you find?
1: you know i think that at the time there was uh, a a good spiritual receptivity but uh, one of the things that i found was lots of times people just want to be um with the foreigner sometimes being cr- doing cross cultural ministry is very good because people want to know the foreigner and, and and it was it was a way to get into the people's hearts they they wanted to, they wanted to know the foreigner and learn from the foreigner but um some of them were what we call rice christians they just wanted to be there for whatever whatever they could get and um you know but many of them stuck and we still have a church there in in kampung cham and one in suing another place that we lived uh, after about three years we moved to a place called suing there's there's a church there too um the kampung cham church is uh is a is a a big church there and they and they use it for a training training center as well that was after we left uh, we bought the property there and now it 's worth millions of dollars i paid I think I paid thirty thousand u s dollars for this big piece of property now it 's worth lots and lots of money because it 's right in the heart of the city.
0: I want you to talk to me about how you go about how you went about initiating those conversations with people mm. to introduce them to Jesus.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you know, um, I became very bold because I figured I had nothing to lose if people uh, didn't want to get into Christianity. So I would just tell them I'm a Christian and and would you like to know anything about Jesus? And I hate to say it, but if they said no, I just moved to the next person. You, you know, I, I, I think that sometimes we get stuck on just trying to find one person and get them in just because they're friendly or nice or because they live next door but go to the next neighbor if he really wants to know about jesus just keep getting go further out and so that's what we did we just found new people to to evangelize and sooner or later you know people want to get to know jesus and they want to know what 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 makes and again some people won't Uh, embrace jesus but some will and and that's what happened
0: somebody says yeah i want to know more about jesus Mm -hmm. where did you begin as a missionary speaking a foreign language Mm -hmm. far from home where did you start
1: well you know it's interesting after a while i started an english class called uh, english according to mark so i would start right in the book of mark and i would just copy the the first page mark second page third page and just start working them right through the life of christ and what's interesting about that is they start asking you questions about the lesson. And what is, what is this talking about, and, you know? And um and then some people just come straight to you like Nicodemus did and say, "What do I need to do to be saved?" you know? People would actually do that. I not to say it's easier. It was easier then, but it does seem easier than it is now. The 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 religion there has really taken a hold again and um while we have when we went there there was no Adventist presence there was somewhere around uh, I guess somewhere around 97th Adventist congregations in Cambodia in, in these days. But um, in those days, there wasn't uh, very many uh, Adventist congregations. So, Let
0: me ask you this. How does the church do today? Is it, is it, is it difficult? Is it easy? Mm. Or assuming it's somewhere in between those two poles, just how challenging is it to, to share Christ and win people to Christianity in Cambodia today?
1: Well, it, you know, we have work all over Cambodia. We have a couple of different projects. One, um, one amongst the Penang, which is a school, and uh, the girls weren't going to school until I mean they were quitting school around fourth grade. So we said, let's let's fix that if we can. So we created a school where they can go, hopefully into college if if, if we can get them to, through their senior year in high school. Then we want to move them to college. We want them to have a choice, and. Uh, and then we have a, a a work amongst the Muslim in in um, one of our one of the areas there, and uh, they do a lot of medical work. And these people have had eye surgeries and and different things. And so one of the ways we reach the people there is to simply just do what Jesus would do, do whatever we can for them. Uh, the missionaries there help with people's shacks to they help them make them better so they have a place to live. You know, you have to be able to do whatever you can. And when someone becomes a Christian from from in that area, their families disown them. They don't. They won't help them with their harvest or anything like that. One one such person actually was just his wife left him and everything. She's come back now and actually become an Adventist. But I'll tell you, he took he took a hit, and the, the missionaries just kept loving him and helping him and and. Buying generator or whatever he needed for his business and just kept working him forward and uh, finally he's now someone who is employed by the church and and does church planting himself
0: i want to pick up more on uh, on that with you in just a moment arnold hooker is my guest he's a missionary with adventist frontier missions has been involved in mission work for more than quarter of a century this is our conversation and we'll be back with more in just a moment At the very time the human family had departed from faith in God and descended deep into rebellion, God called a man who would be faithful, who would give an example of trust in God when no one else would believe. Commissioned by God to save the human family, Noah stands as a striking example of integrity in a faithless world. Learn how Noah's experience shines light on your pathway in another episode of It Is Written's new series, Great Characters of the Bible. When the world had reached its lowest point, God turned to Noah, who built an ark to survive a flood in a world where rain had never before fallen. Great Characters of the Bible, the story of Noah, brought to you by It Is Written TV. This is Conversations. I'm John Bradshaw, joined by Arnold Hooker, who for more than a quarter of a century has been a missionary and is still on the front lines of mission service. Arnold, I appreciate you being here. A moment ago, we were talking about some of the challenges faced by people in the countries where where missionaries work. That is, if they come to faith in Jesus, things can really change. We're still talking about Cambodia. We're going to move forward in a moment. But when you were in Cambodia... You're inviting people to come to Jesus, but there could be some difficult consequences. What might they be?
1: Well, um, you know, I I firsthand knew that some kids got beat by their parents for, for thinking about be, being Christians, um, and uh, some kids just wouldn't show up anymore. We, we heard later that their parents didn't want them to know anymore about Jesus. Um, you know... Uh, it would be maybe like if your own son came to you and said, "Dad, I I think I'd like to be Hare Krishna or something like that." You know, it'd be it'd be difficult for you. You know, you would probably do everything you could to keep him from. Maybe you wouldn't beat him, but <laughs> but you understand what I'm trying to say. Yeah, sure. And so, um yeah, it's difficult it, when you uh, to be to be Cambodian and they say is to be Buddhist. Ninety some percent Buddhism there, and. Mm. So, um, you know, you, you have to think about uh, the, those other minorities, too. There are some Muslim groups there, and Christians actually are pulling, it, pulling ahead in, in some ways in, in, the, in the country. But-
0: so how do missionaries respond, react? You're working with a, a family or with some kids. They're being rejected or mm. beaten or they've lost their mm. jobs. Mm. This is where missionaries have to step in and be really creative.
1: Well, I can tell you, um, Joshua Lewis tells the story of this little boy coming to him and his ears are bleeding. And it wasn't because uh, that he was uh, wanting to become a Christian. It was because his dad was an alcoholic. But the missionaries uh, just c- took some water and bathed him and held him and cried with him and sent him back home, you know. That's all you can really do. Just keep a place where love is open. And uh, so that's that's what you do. You 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 keep helping people until they get all the way through and says that whatever whatever God wants to happen to me, that's okay.
0: We hear missionaries tell stories of the absolutely miraculous things they saw. What did you see? What did you experience that you that, that you said that was God working supernaturally?
1: Well, you know, for myself personally, there's a lot of things, but I'll just say that. One of the things that the most remarkable uh, recently, Diane and I were in Papua New Guinea. Um, I guess it was more like uh, three years ago. Time goes by quickly. Sure. But um, turns out that in Papua New Guinea, uh, we met two of the head wardens. And we were um, with the missionaries on an island. We were having lunch in this place. And these fellows were there and they were having a meeting, and I said, "What's going on?" I just struck up a conversation with one of the men. He said, "We're we're all wardens of the prisons here in in Cambodia. I mean, in uh, in uh, Papua New Guinea," and I, and he said to me, he said, "Uh, uh, we're we're Christians," and I said, "Oh, we're we're Seventh Heaven." He says, "I'm a Seventh Avenue too," and he said, "My boss is a Seventh Avenue. He said, "You'll be hard pressed to get any other religion in our prisons because we're the." We don't allow anyone else to give <laughs> Bible studies. And you start thinking about that. You know, God is working in the end days now to do things that we could never do before. And of course, the prime minister of Papua New Guinea is, is a Seventh Adventist, uh, James Marape, and uh, just a, a, a neat fellow. We, we don't know him personally, but he wiggled out to one of our projects. That's a whole nother story, but God is so good. He, he's putting people in our in our way so that we can move the work forward quickly.
0: Okay, so speaking of Papua New Guinea, these days you are with Adventist Frontier Missions, which is based in Bering Springs, Michigan. Missionaries all over the world. You oversee projects in Papua New Guinea. You oversee projects and, and missionaries, which is probably a better way of putting it, and in Southeast Asia. So tell me a little bit about your role and what's going on in your corner of the world.
1: Well... Um, in a creative excess country that we're not going to say the name of, we were uh, working in a center there for influence, and uh, we um, they do much the same kind of thing that I talked about. They teach English, um, and then they just do, do Bible studies and, and so on and so forth. You find out kind of quietly and not really secretively, but. People say, "Well, what, what about God? What about your God?" And they and so we're there doing some Bible studies right now. And there, um, in Cambodia, we have work among uh, the Muslims there, and uh, it's a beautiful work. God is, God is doing things that we could never do before. People are coming forward and saying, "I, I want to know more about Jesus." And and again, it's just friendship, evangelism, loving people to, to Jesus, and uh, taking leads. You know, you want to work with someone who has an idea that they want to be a Christian or they want to know something about Jesus. So you keep working with people. You don't want to work with someone who doesn't want to. It's just a waste of time. It's better to work with someone who comes forward and says, I'd like to know a little bit more about it. But then in Papua New Guinea, um, we've had just uh, amazing things happen. We have two training centers. Tell me
0: where you have these training centers.
1: Um, Well, they're, they're just on little islands. The the rivers in uh, in Papua New Guinea, as you know, you've been there. They're just like snakes, and it creates basically islands, you know, because they switch back. And so the people live on these islands for sake of illustration, and uh, and so we go there and just uh, teach them how to do. We have we had a sawmill donated uh, from New Zealand. It was it's just a miracle. Uh, The uh, the New Zealand High Commission came, and, and if they're listening right now, praise the Lord for a uh, New Zealand High Commission. Amen. Um, they, they, um, they bought us a $40,000 sawmill, and now it teaches men how to run a sawmill and make planks to make houses and different things. So our um, training center has a lot of that wood in it, and uh, they have wood that's so dense there you have to, t- you have to tie it to another tree Or it'll sink out of, out of sight. Uh, they, they've lost logs, valuable logs because they weren't tied properly to a floating tree. These trees don't float, they sink because they're so dense. Wow. And that, the wood is just incredible when they make, make furniture and house, house wood out of it. Anyway, um, God is just doing amazing, amazing things in Papua New Guinea.
0: Let me talk about mission, mission work a little more broadly. So you mentioned a sawmill was donated. Um, as a missionary, you've been supported by others. So you're at the front end of the work. Mm. But mission work takes a team, uh, takes supporters. It takes people willing to put their hand in their pocket mm. and say, I believe in what's going on. I want to support you. Mm. So maybe I'll come to that next, but I want to ask you now about people who are interested in getting involved in mm. mission work. Mm. Is mission work for everyone? I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to ask you, who is it not for? So mm. I will. Is it for everyone? The answer's got to be no. Or th- being a missionary on site probably isn't for everyone. Mm. Who is it not for?
1: Well, I think it's not for the faint-hearted. You know, I think that when you go to a country where it's 98 degrees and 90% humidity, you, you have to be ready to go there. Um, but you also have to really like camping because lots of times when you when an Adventist Frontier Missions is like the Marines of Mission Service, they're going to go and they're going to be breaking new ground. So they may have to build their own house. They may have to find a place to stay. And they're, they're going to be, it's going to be difficult for, for the most part, for most of our
0: projects. Yeah, most of the projects. But, mm. but you know that uh, AFM and other organizations as well send missions to... Missionaries to First World Nations. Mm-hmm. You might go somewhere in mm-hmm. Europe mm-hmm. Uh, or other places. So so perhaps if someone suggests, you know, I don't want to tangle with s- snakes and rats and wardlogged houses, maybe there's somewhere a little more sedate for me. Is, is that fair to be able to say it like that? Yeah,
1: I think that um, there are some calls that need less of of the, uh, you know, training that's available at Adventist Frontier Missions. Um we we've had we've had um, even in Ireland we've had projects there we don't have them there anymore, um, but uh, certain places are just easier. Um, Albania is is you would think it would be easier, but it's really not. So when you start thinking about some of the countries that you would think are, they're not. You know it's still difficult. Yeah, I think you have to go with a, a spirit of. Um, what you what do you want me to do, Lord? What yeah. what is it that Jesus wants me to do? And that and that's the kind of person that we want to have in the mission field.
0: I don't want to walk too far back. I think your principle is 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 absolutely right and very the point is well taken. That that spirit of I may have to put up with some things. Uh, that's that's important to to remember. So someone who's interested in mission work clearly they're going to pray, they're going to talk to other people. But now at, somewhere along the line they're going to sit down. Maybe it's mom and dad, maybe they're children, maybe they're not, might even be a single person, but they have to say to themselves, am I a candidate for this, really? Or am I just going on a romantic notion from a mission book I read? Mm. How do you advise that person to to go through that sort of self-assessment process and say, maybe you are, maybe you're not? Where do they begin?
1: Well, I think you begin by uh, calling one 800 yes for afm and starting through the process, I remember going through the process and thinking, "Oh, I'm not going to be able to do this. They're going to, you know, shut me out somehow." But yeah, go through the process of just just going to AFM online or whatever, and uh, AFMonline.org is what I think it is, and um, and just start through the process of of signing up. Um, you know, we have uh, what we call platinums. This is a group. There's about four groups that go out as missionaries. One is our platinums. These are retired people who have their pension already coming in, and they can go to a country and help with other seasoned missionaries. Maybe they'll help teach their kids, uh, do some homeschooling. Maybe they'll be grandpa and grandma to some kids at a school. I don't know, whatever. But platinums can go out. Yeah, that's uh, an
0: interesting concept. So you're saying age is not necessarily a barrier. Uh, uh, no,
1: as long as you're, you know, under 105 and and still, you know, can handle getting. Your suitcase onto a.
0: You know, there's a hundred and six year old right now watching, saying, "Hey, okay. hey, what about okay. me? I can All right. sling a suitcase around." But that, I think no I think problem. we get we get what you mean. Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. And so uh, then we have a, a short term volunteer. We have a short term volunteer. I think who's been out twenty years. I, I could be wrong, but I think she's been out for uh, for twenty years. That's a year to year process, and you don't need a lot of fundraising. You just go out, and so people will will usually find you and help start helping you financially. Then you have the, the regular career missionary who raises funds and goes out, and the people support them as long as they're out. And then you have the student missionary who goes out, and I think AFM still finds about 50% of those funds for that student missionary. So it's a good deal for student missionaries. They can go out for one year, two years. I've even had one go out for three years. Chris Sorensen, maybe you heard of that fellow. Oh, yeah beautiful musician. I think he's from this area. Um, he was out for three years. Finally, I had to say, Chris, go home and find a find a wife.
0: <laughs> Which he did. And then he they did. turned around and went, went back. Went
1: back. He's in Thailand now at a music school doing a wonderful job for the Lord.
0: Speaking of, uh, of students who go back, there are now second generation missionaries. Your own son is one of them. Mm. Talk about that phenomenon. Kids grow up in the mission field, come home, mm. turn around and go back. Yeah. We have, uh, I think,
1: two or three uh, young people who their parents grew him up out there. I uh, think of John Holbrook. Um, he he's working in Palawan, real close to there, where his where his folks where he grew up. And he actually married a Palawan girl. Very nice family they there are. And uh, then my son Joshua, he's working in a village about an hour and a half from where he grew grew up as a young person. And they just feel more comfortable. Um, in the countries where they grew up, um, it's kind of like they don't really fit into either either society. They're not really from their homeland, and they're not really from there. But they feel feel like God has l- brought their families there, and then and they need a lot less. I mean, I needed a generator and all these things, uh, refrigerator and all these things, but they go and they're they don't they don't need as much. They they. The second generation missionary, they go with understanding the language already. I struggled with it for the whole time I was there. They go and they understand the, the little tiny, you know, the little gestures and stuff that, that I may have missed as a, as a missionary, a, first, a first-time missionary. And so they're, they're more, way more suited, uh, the second generation missionaries.
0: Let me ask you this question. What's the state of mission work? around the world. How's missions doing? How would you answer that question?
1: Um, I think we need about 10,000 where we have one, um, to tell you the truth. Or we have countries, whole countries that, for instance, you have like 600 languages in China alone, about 300 in Cambodia. I think there's somewhere around uh, four or 500 in Thailand, different language groups that are getting completely squashed out. And um, why is it important? Well, I think it's important because um, my my background is German, for instance. my My grandfathers came from Germany, and um I don't speak German. I can say a few words, and but I'm just trying to say that we we need missionaries from every. All the groups around it, you know, and to speak the heart language, to go and learn the language is, is the first lesson we learn it. If you speak the language of the people, they'll respond better. They, they love to hear you. It, it, try it next time you go into a, a Mexican restaurant, you know. Say muchas gracias, you know. When they bring their food, they'll say something to you. Yeah, they may was, even bring was, you more chips, you know. I, I don't was know.
0: disappointed, man. I studied German in high school. I was at an airport in Germany, and I asked for the thing in the in, the, in German, and and actually, the person responded in English. <laughs> <laughs> you know, young Germans speak such good English. I think she must have heard my accent and said, "Oh, why bother, man? I'll, I'll help you with this." But mm. no, I of course it makes it makes a big difference, doesn't it? Um, so we need more missionaries. We need them around the world. Someone's going to say, you mentioned Papua New Guinea, but there's tons of Christians in Papua New Guinea. Why aren't we sending Papua New Guineans to another part of Papua New Guinea to reach Papua New Guineans? Clearly, there's a very good answer for that, but what is it?
1: Yeah. Cross-cultural ministry is something that really works. And, you know, it worked for me and it and it works for the Erickson's and, and the different missionaries that are in Papua New Guinea. Uh, people want to learn sometimes you your own tribesmen don't have the answers or they don't think they do they may and they could but um it is happening though uh, we have uh, workers now that have went to school and been trained sure. and uh we're we've been around Papua New Guinea somewhere around 30 years or more um and now uh there are people starting to work the the river and 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 um, I can think of some men that are up there that are doing a wonderful job. They've, they're they're um, working for God. But in, 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 in a lot of cases, though, the foreign missionary still holds a lot of weight to, well, I want to know what they believe, and I want to hear it from them. And so I think cross-cultural ministry is, is, a, is still something that we need to keep doing.
0: Yeah. Another thing to keep in mind, too, there are tons of countries where there just aren 't locals with the expertise that's right and there aren 't locals with the means, and mm. the local mission just doesn 't have the money so so there 's that aspect as well we don 't have a whole lot of time left i 'm sorry, but i 'm going to ask a couple of things before in the time that we do. Tell me about some exciting things that you 're seeing around the world, maybe from from the organizational point of view mm. from AFM something that you've observed. Don't, mm. You don't have to name countries if it's better not to name the countries because that's a consideration. Mm. Some kind, sometimes it's just best not to name them. Mm. What are some things that are happening and we'll say, wow, God is really working?
1: Mm. Well, the prime minister made it out to one of our projects. It was something very exciting for us. Um, the Ericsons met him at a tribal show and uh, he, But make a long story short, he said, I'd really like to see your project so he bring a boatload of soldiers, a boatload of police, secret police, his own boatload of parliament members and, and governors, and then the Ericsons let him in their little dinghy an hour and a half downriver. They show up at their project, and the, the group can't believe what they're doing for the people of Papua New Guinea. So Adventist couple who's been there 12, 13 years, maybe, maybe longer, maybe 14 years, um, starting a training center, had to go and build their own house. The struggles with that for a couple of years until they got their house built. And everything has to be shipped in. It's One of our projects there is 24 hours from c- civilization by about three means of travel. You travel all day long and overnight sometimes. But the Erickson's had this group out there. The prime minister, to make a long story short, met him at this tribal thing he said i have to see your project right now and imagine the prime minister of your country or your the president of your country coming and it's just so exciting his his name is james marape and james came and at the he was so so excited they gave him 12 about 1200 us dollars that's a lot of money for this country and sure i i can just imagine uh you know their excitement and seeing this they said spend this on what do something with this money to help people, and then the man took out his business card. The prime minister wrote his personal phone number on the back and said, "If you ever need something, let me know." Imagine that the prime minister saying, "John, here, here's a, here's a, here's my personal card. If you if if you need help, yeah, with that's something. really working. Yeah, and so I praise God. Things are shaping up in the world to where." Um, God is putting people in high positions so that his work can be finished. And I believe that we're living right in the end of time.
0: Yeah, I imagine there are places that missionaries just have a hard time. And I want to ask you how they deal with that. Um, I asked a church member of mine once, what was it like when you were a little boy, and this is going back a thousand years, you know, being raised in what was a a hardcore mission country. He said, if we baptize one, it was time for great celebration. How do missionaries hang in there? They're there to church plant, they're there to win souls, but some places are just
1: difficult. Mm.
0: How do they get through that?
1: Um, You know, I think that a lot of the countries we work in, if we baptize just one, you are excited. Um, if one person comes forward and says, I, I'm starting to get it. I, I, I'm starting to love Jesus. I understand why, you're, why you came and why you're excited about being a Christian yourself. In um, some of our closed access countries, people um, start saying, wow, they love me. The, these missionaries love me and, and they want to know deeper why, why, why. And Then they create their own, not create, they get their own. Relationship with Jesus, and, and it, that starts making them um, love love Jesus even more because they start knowing Him for themselves.
0: There are some churches that are very much on board with missions; they support missions, they support mm. missionaries. Many churches do not. Mm. What, what could somebody do at a local church level to say, "Hey, we want to we want to just kind of kind of bend the church in the direction of supporting mission work?"
1: Can I tell you honestly? Yeah. Okay. I would find a a couple that's going out, and the church would put their picture on the wall and say, "That's our missionary." They would um, every every week have a mission update. Sometimes Skype them in. It'll be in the middle of the night for the missionary. Doesn't matter. They can go to a lit marketplace and and have have it come o- over the screen. On the t- we've got we've got churches with all this video equipment and stuff that that could be used for something like this. And now we have. Uh, You know, things that they could do. What I'm trying to say is make your missionary uh, a priority. Ellen White tells us some 150 times, she says, it's not what is done here that makes the church temperature go up as far as the the people coming in. It's what's done over there. And um, so if we have a church that is excited about missions over here,
0: they're going to grow. That's right. A lot of people worry, pastors will worry about that. Well, oh, I don't want to see any money going out to support missions overseas because mm-hmm. of all, but, but what we've been told is support for mission there will mm-hmm. result in greater support for mission here. So it's good for mm-hmm. congregations to get on board, isn't it?
1: You know, here in Tennessee, some of you may know Wolf Shadimsky. He told me one time, he said, Arnold, he said to me, um, my church has grown because I put missions in our mission statement. And I said, is that all you did? And he said, yeah. I challenge churches seventh avenue churches to put missionaries in their mission statement support them it may change some little budget from you know a thousand dollars to six thousand dollars or whatever the missionary takes to be out there but that church will grow and they won't have to worry about money or, any, anymore and it'll just keep growing and they'll wonder why they didn't and then they'll put another missionary up and another missionary up and another missionary up and then we get to go home
0: amen we got about two and a half minutes so what fires you up? You've been doing this for a while. You've seen just about everything. And not many missionaries are going to call you and say, I need help with X. And you're going to say, what in the world? This is new. You've seen it all. But you're, you're, you're driven by the Lord to go forward. What is it that, that gets you up in the morning, uh, puts wind in your sails, excites you about what you're doing?
1: I think as a young man, I thought I was going to go to Cambodia and everyone was going to become a Seventh Adventist. I don't, I had this this dream like that. And I think it gets crushed, but I I think what, what gets me is when I hear there's another 80 or there's another 40 ready for baptism. There's another one person ready for baptism. Yeah. That gets me. When someone gives their life to Jesus Christ, that gets me.
0: You've seen it happen an awful lot. We know Jesus is coming back soon. So what we know is you're going to see it an awful lot more. Thank God for that. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you taking your time. Let me pray with you before I Mm. liberate you. Can we pray? Yeah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful today that you've given us an opportunity to know you and then share you with others. I'm grateful for what Arnold and Diane are doing at the sharp end of mission work. We're thankful for AFM and the many... Adventist Frontier Mission's missionaries around the world, I pray you bless them, and other missionaries besides. Remind us again, Lord, we are a people of missions. We're committed to seeing the everlasting gospel go to earth's remotest bounds. Bless my brother and his family. Keep them close to you. Energize them. Anoint them. Fill him with your spirit, we pray. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Arnold, thanks for joining me. It's been fun. Really thanks for appreciate. having me. we yeah, about the you. tears of joy here. <laughs> no, tears of joy are always <laughs> welcome. And thank you for joining us. We both appreciate it very much. I'm going to remind you again, God has called us to take the everlasting gospel where to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. If God is calling you, even if you think he might be, contact AFM, speak to the pastor of your church, call somebody, say, what do I need to do to find out more about this? And if you or your church isn't supporting missions, then go to the Lord right now, tell him that you purpose for that to change and you want to do more to see, earth, uh, to see this earth enlightened with the glory of God as the gospel has taken to places where now missionaries are doing everything they can to lift up Jesus. Arnold Hooker has been my guest. Thanks for joining us. This has been our conversation.